this week. We have a great show. Nathan Berry is on the program. NathanBerry.com. He's launched a bunch of stuff, including some really successful ebooks, and he has a new project called ConvertKit. Before we get started, I'd like to tell you about our friends at Sprintly. Uh, at my day job, Sprintly is what I use to uh, track our development process. Everyone on our team has a simple view of our company's development. On one screen, we can see what's in the backlog, what people are currently working on, and what's been completed and is ready for testing. I'd like you to try Sprintly out for free. You can sign up for a 30-day trial at www.sprint.ly. Hi, I'm Justin. And I'm Kyle. And this is Product People, the podcast focused on great products and the people who make them. And today we have a young whippersnapper on our show, Nathan Berry, here to talk talk to us about building info and content products, as well as a bunch of other things. So welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks for having me on. And so, Nathan, for the people who don't know you, why don't you give us a background? Where are you from, and what were you doing before you started building your own products? Yeah, so... I live in Boise, Idaho, which is not known for being a huge tech hub, but uh, we have our handful of startups and uh, a good what is, for What is Boise known for? Um, besides potatoes. Uh, yeah, besides potatoes. Well, the state's known for potatoes, which is actually just a case of really good marketing. Um, <laughs> and uh, side point, if you ever want to be known for something or say that your product is quality in some way, yeah. to say where it was made. And so long as it wasn't made in China, you know, then it's ah, good. That's interesting. These are Florida oranges. These are, you know, the uh, the iPhone is designed in California. You know, and just the fact that you say that makes it seem higher quality. That's right. Anyway, the, so, the, these are ketchup chips made in Canada. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Anyway, I, I think it's people assume that if you weren't going to, or the fact that you mentioned where it's from implied right. more formally. That's right. Anyway, so Idaho potatoes. Yes, that's what we're famous for. Um, so, yeah, I lost my train of thought. So, uh, so yeah, just your background. You're from Boise, and what were you doing before you, you uh, started building products? So I uh, was going to college for mar- first graphic design, then I didn't like that. I had was frustrated with the art department at the school I was going to. And uh, then I switched to marketing and uh, on the side, I was building websites and, you know, doing freelancing and paying for college that way. Uh, and eventually that was going so well. And I realized that I liked making money more than spending it. And college was starting to get a little expensive. Um, and so I dropped out and started focusing on freelancing full time. And I was just designing websites for different local companies uh, probably my average project was about a thousand to two thousand dollars, um, and I made an okay living at it for you know someone who just dropped out of college, um, and so that was that was good. And then uh, I ended up going on a long trip to South Africa in uh, I guess it was December two thousand eight, January two thousand nine, and I had just had some really successful months freelancing before that. Um, and I came back from this five-week trip where I had done no work whatsoever. We were starting to run low on money, and I 
contacted all these companies that I had lined up and had been talking to. It's saying, okay, you want to get going on this project? And everybody went, you know, no. We're, we're going to hold off and we're going to wait and see what our customers do. Because they said our customers aren't spending money, so we're not going to either right now. And so I basically went from not having worked for quite a while and ready to jump back in to do work, and nobody, nobody had projects. Um, except for one company that I, and one startup that I'd done some work for, they ended up offering me a position leading their design team. And probably a couple months earlier, I would have said, no way, I'm totally independent. And at this point, I was like, yep, that sounds perfect, let's do it. Because yeah. uh, I was getting married in a couple months, and, you know, City income and all that is nice. Yeah, so this is 2009? Yeah, that was 2009. Um, when you started working for the startup? Yeah, so then I led their design team uh, building web applications for nearly three years. Um, and so that took me to, uh, what, October 2011. Um, and that was at the point where, you know, I'd learned a ton and finally had enough of working for other people. Uh, and so I, I went out on my own and um, started freelancing again. And I had an, I'd built an iPad app called One Voice, and that was making me a couple thousand dollars a month. Uh, really? Wow. Yeah. And so what I'd done is I created One Voice while, uh, while working full-time. So it was a side project. So there's no risk uh, in building it whatsoever. And then as I started selling that, and it started, you know, started out making 500 bucks a month, and then it went up from there, and I just saved all that money. Because uh, so when it came time, in one voice came out in January 2011. Uh, by October 2011, I had about thirty thousand dollars saved up. And that's when I was ready to quit my job, um, because and maybe eighteen or nineteen thousand of that was actually from profit from one voice. Wow! Um, and so, the previous time that I'd done freelancing, it was this roller coaster of income where one month I'd make five hundred bucks, the next month I'd make eight thousand, and I'd have this emotional roller coaster that would go with it, right? Feeling like. I was on top of the world, and the next thinking, like, I can't run a, even a tiny business successfully. Yeah. Um, and so I knew that I had to have a product if I was going to go out on my own again. I needed another revenue stream to even that out. And so I got that through uh, through one voice, the iPad app. Huh. Um, and so I only left my job once that was fairly consistent and I had money saved up. So with one voice, uh, you were you were building that while you were still at the startup or were you building it kind of like as you started diving into freelancing? I built it while I was at the startup. Okay. So, um, you know, it was very much a nights and weekends sort of project. And, uh, you know, that's what I'd say to anybody building products is build it in your free time. Um, there's, there's no reason that you have to quit your job and, uh, kind of go all in and take on all this risk. You can mm-hmm. work. I'm I'm very risk averse. That's why before quitting my job, I save up a lot of money and build 
the products beforehand and because uh, I, I think all this startup risk that everybody talks about is entirely unnecessary at least for the type of business I'm I'm trying to build right so how long did it take you to build one voice part-time you know, it was four months uh, to release the first version uh, and I was learning how to program in Objective-C at the time as well and so um, and the first version was pretty basic, but you know I got it out there and then spent my free time for another six or eight months. I'd say most of my free time for six months more continuing to improve it. Okay. And, but I'd been at that point, I'd been designing a lot of um, iPhone and iPad applications either for other freelance clients or uh, for the startup I was working for. Right. And so was One Voice your first first stab at making a product, or had you like tried some other things in the past that didn't stick? Or I'd tried other things. So I had created a uh, well back up and say when I was doing the freelance websites, those were all in WordPress, right? So I would you know it'd be a small a local small business, and I would build a WordPress site for them. So I had a ton of experience building WordPress themes. So logically, I should start a business selling WordPress themes because Woo Themes and all these other people right. were, were doing pretty well at the time. That's right. And and I'd watched the premium theme market for WordPress start and and build some there. <laughs> yeah, and at each point thinking, I could start now, but I'm too late to the party, you know. And right. thought that for years. And then seeing new companies come in and do really well and go, oh, well, apparently they weren't too late. But now it's too late. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's nonsense. It's never too late. Um, so I did eventually start a company or start a site around that. Um, and I made some sales, but I didn't know anything about marketing at the time. And right. so, and I was too easily distracted. So I bounced around to, to different projects and... I think I made a total of like four hundred bucks off of uh, off of that. Well, that's still interesting. And and just for um, so we can kind of place this. So, uh, so how how old were you when you were building two thousand eleven? Sorry, in two thousand eleven, building One Voice. Um, so I would have been twenty or twenty one. You were 20, so 21 I, in 2011. Yeah. So I'm 22 now. Okay. Um, if you want to bring age into this picture, I have to back up. Um, <laughs> Let's bring it in. <laughs> so uh, if that timeline didn't make any sense, it's because I graduated high school when I was 15, um, dropped out of college at 17, and um, so and then was 18 when I joined that startup, and... I'm 22 now. And when did you get married? At at 18 in, in 2009. Oh man! Okay. Yeah, yeah. We're, so we're hopefully that timeline helps. Yeah, yeah. So wow, this is crazy. Um, that's a lot of change uh, all at once. Um, well, I'd be I'd be curious to know a little bit more about one voice and why, like what prompted you because that's it's sort of a project management app correct no actually um one voice is an ipad app 
for uh, if, I guess if you can't speak, so if you have nonverbal autism or you had a stroke and lost the ability oh, to speak, right. um, then one voice would be used on the iPad and you select tiles and each tile has a, a picture and then a word or a short phrase and you use those to build a sentence and then it has synthesized speech so it speaks for you. And so it's this iPad app that replaces a six to $10,000 medical device. Um, you can imagine like these ruggedized touchscreen PCs that cost a small fortune. Right, right. Yeah, I, was, I had it mixed up with uh, One Motion. Yeah. Another app of yours. Okay. So, yeah, and that, so that seems like a pretty ambitious um, pro- like first app for you. What kind of prompted you to, to tackle something like you know, that? So when working at this startup, we heard the iPad was coming out, you know, once it was announced and, and the management decided they wanted to have an iPad app out the first, you know, the day the iPad came out, they wanted to have an app for it. We had no, we knew nothing about building apps for the iPhone or iPad. And so we started learning about that. And so when I built that first project for them, I did all the Photoshop design and like barely got into Xcode. And then later, um, you know, the next app that I worked on for them, I implemented the design in in Interface Builder and Xcode, um, but didn't do any of the programming. And so after that, like, I had my feet wet, and I knew kind of how things worked, um, and I was looking to learn more programming. So I was headed to uh, an event in San Jose called iOS Dev Camp, and it's a weekend hackathon hosted at the PayPal offices, um, and I needed a project. And so I was looking for what am I going to build. Um, And my sister-in-law worked with kids with autism and had told me about these ruggedized PCs that everybody was using. Um, You know, if you can imagine a touchscreen device running Windows XP and, like, you see the little cursor on there and stuff, it's an absolutely horrible experience. Right. Um, and so with the iPad coming out, you know, there's a market for it. And a few people were porting solutions over, but the, uh, the user interface and user experience was downright awful. Um, so I, sh- I knew about that and showed up to the iOS dev camp expecting to join somebody else's team um, to hack on stuff for the weekend. And there j- just didn't come across anything that I really wanted to work on. So uh, I was there with with a friend and and he said well why don't we work on this idea you have and um, so over the weekend he helped me hack it out and you know we had a working prototype by the end of the weekend uh, and then it took four more months to get it to a right. releasable state yeah I think you're the but that's kind of the sort I think you're the first person I've met that's actually made that much money in the app store like I know really? a lot of people that launch products in the uh, in the uh, app store but uh you know a couple grand worth of revenue a month that's fairly significant mm-hmm. what, there seems to be a, a mix of people who do really really well and people who don't do anything at all yeah um, and so i try to play the middle of the road where i think since january 2011 so we're at just over two years and i've done about uh i want to say 55 
thousand in revenue. Wow, and, I mean this yeah. app is two hundred dollars, right? Like it's yes. it's not a two dollar app. Mm-hmm. That that's it, really interesting. Yeah, so the the app plus the iPad, you know, is going to run you five six hundred bucks. The device it replaces will run you seven eight thousand dollars. Yeah. So I figured ten percent of the competition was a decent place to be. And who's buying this app? Is it organizations? Is it um, you know? Is it caretakers? Who who is the the customer for this? So a lot of it is uh, parents who have kids with autism. Um, it'll be speech and language pathologists who are the ones. Um, you know, who are helping the kids learn how to how to speak in a, in a way that works for them, um, or it'll be schools. Schools will often buy you know twenty copies in bulk or something. Wow. Hmm. So when you guys started building this in this hackathon, did you guys have like this in mind, turning it into like a you know an app that was going to sell close to sixty thousand dollars worth? Or was it just sort of like let's let's learn programming, let's hack on it and see what happens? Yeah, the, it, it was let's hack on it and, and go from there. I always plan to to sell it for something, um, right? You know, I thought about releasing it for a dollar, five dollars, something, ten dollars, something like that. The thing is, I wanted to make a really good product, and if I released it. For $5, the market I'm selling to is really, really small. So maybe I would have made a couple thousand dollars off of it. And I just couldn't afford to invest a ton of time and hire another developer when I would get stuck and that kind of thing to make a really great product if I'm not making money off of it. So I wanted to do the right thing for my customers and charge enough money so that I could invest the time to make a great product. Huh. You know, I like how you said that. Do the right thing for your customers by charging them more. Like, it, it totally makes sense, but uh, it's kind of like a counterintuitive thing to think about, right? When you think about pricing your product, you think about pricing it lower. Lower is what like benefits your, your customers. But Yeah, and what benefits your customers is a company that stays around and delivers quality products and supports them well. Yeah, that is counterintuitive, though, for a lot of people. That that idea of pricing on value and pricing for the long haul. Um, you know, most people who launch apps in the app store sell it for ninety nine cents. So th- it's interesting that you recognize that so early, uh, as you know, as you were building products. That that's uh, that's fairly significant. Yeah, I think uh, pricing is a is a very important topic and it's obviously made a huge difference for me okay so let's let's fast forward we we have a lot of stuff we want to talk to you about i want to make sure we get it get to it all um let's fast forward to the app design handbook what what was behind that idea how did that come around so i've been building apps like one voice i had another app called commit that i built um a bunch of apps for uh, freelancing clients, basically. And I was starting to get people, you know, friends and others asking me, where do you learn to design apps? Everyone else I knew who was building iPhone apps came from it, or came to the world from the development side. Mm -hmm. And I was the opposite, where I came from the design side and was trying to learn to program. 
they came from the development side and they were trying to make decent looking apps and Apple had set the standard really really high and everybody was having a, a really hard time meeting that standard and um, you know it, I had a couple friends that it was really frustrating them because they they couldn't find resources specific to designing apps um, everything about web design and all of that and a tiny bit of it applied over but um, anyway so I knew that was a demand and um, so I like very casually started working on some tutorials a, a book for that um, but I thought of it more of okay I could spend some free time and help people to learn learn this like that's a worthy cause I can do that and then um, two designers who I admire very much, uh, Sasha Grief and Jared Drysdale, uh, released design ebooks on the same day. I want to say it was like March twenty fifth, two thousand twelve, or something like that. Yeah. Um, Wait, is that date was... right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, if he says about and then gives a, an actual date, it was somewhere right around. Um, <laughs> It will go with the end of March. I don't know the exact date. Yeah. Uh, but then it was interesting because they had two different pricing models and um, and there was a lot of great stuff to learn from that, but it was a total chance that they released on the same day. Um, and everybody was focused on, in different blog posts, on like which pricing model was better. And I just sat back and looked at that and went, wait a second. You made like six grand in 48 hours and you made eight grand in 48 hours. And neither of you have an audience that's that much bigger than mine. Like, 37 Signals writes about publishing and selling their book, Getting Real, um, as an ebook, and And they put in some ridiculous numbers, like, and we made, you know, uh, $500,000 when we first put it out. Yeah. I can't relate to those numbers at all. I know that I can't within the next couple of years achieve a 37 signals audience um, and so that's not very helpful to me but I can look at what Jared and Sasha did and go okay I can achieve those numbers I didn't know that you could sell an ebook, a technical ebook like that and, and make meaningful money from it mm-hmm. um, and so that was the, uh, the motivation I needed to take my random notes and my ideas about a book um, and and bring it to life. So let's. I mean, let's keep going. Then how how big of an audience did you have when you started, and how did you build that audience until launch time? Yeah. So I had. I was getting a a couple thousand visitors a month to my blog, and I was trying to publish a post about something. Um, once a week, and I was fairly consistent. Um, you know, I think that July 2012, I got maybe five or 8,000 visitors that month. Okay. Um, which I was fairly happy with, um, but I didn't have email lists of any kind. My RSS subscribers were like 50. My Twitter followers were maybe 600 or something. Um, I'd been online for a little while, but hadn't gotten any real traction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a commitment um, around then when I decided I was going to get serious about finishing the book 
that I was going to write 1,000 words every day. Hmm. And that's how I was going to actually finish the book. Because I'd started writing books a handful of times before yeah. and never made, you know, the motivation had fizzled out and I'd never made more progress. Yeah. So um, another blogger, an author named Chris Gillibo had really inspired me because he talked about writing a thousand words a day um, and how with that consistent progress, you, you end up writing, you know, well over 300,000 words a year. Um, and that just seemed totally crazy to me. But I thought about it. I'm like, okay, if I spent an hour or two a day writing, I, I could achieve that. And at the very least I could actually finish my book for the first time. I could actually, you know, yeah. Uh, finish the book that I work on. And conveniently, I had already written an app called Commit that tracks habits. And so, you know, the idea is if you want to get good at something, you should do it consistently every day. Um, so I put that into Commit. I will write 1,000 words a day. And it took me a while to get it going. Um, but uh, I eventually got it so that I was writing consistently. And now... I've kept it going, so now I'm on day uh, 203, I think. Really? Of writing a thousand words a day. Wow. <laughs> uh, and that's the thing that has absolutely changed uh, everything. It's changed my blog, my business, my finances, everything. Because producing that much content, uh, you can do a ton of stuff, right? That's two books, that's. Uh, 25 or 30 guest posts, another 30 posts on my own blog. Um, anyway. Wow. So, man. So when you started this, were you like, how much were you writing when you first started? Because like, I know for me, like starting with writing is like super hard and I get stuck and, I, and frustrated. So like writing that first thousand words is probably the hardest. So how did you like keep that going at the start? So there's another quote that I got from Chris Gillibo, um, and it's not actually – he didn't actually say it. I don't know who did, but I learned it from him. And that was, when you hit writer's block, lower your standards and keep writing. <laughs> um, and that made a huge difference for me because I would spend a lot of time – and I think this is what a lot of people do – writing a sentence and then rewriting that same sentence over and over again and not making any progress – and so I actually printed out that quote and put it next to my monitor. And so I would hit that, that point of writer's block where, and then I would just go, you know what? I can edit. I can fix that later. What's more important is that I get this thought out there. Um, and so that makes it easier where, you know, I, I get stuck, look over, see the quote, and, and just make sure I communicate the thought and then make sure to spend plenty of time editing later. Right. So with all the stuff that you're producing, um, you said like that's guest posts, that's posts for your blog, it's two books. Um, how, like how much of that content that you produce do you actually end up using in some way? Like is some of it, do you just kind of toss it aside and just be like, well, I wrote my thousand words for that day. It's not great, but I wrote a thousand words and tomorrow you'll do something different. Um, I'd say I use between 80 and 90%. Um, oh wow! So, a a lot of it, but but certainly not all. Um, and it it gets cut down, especially when working on the books. You, I end up cutting out a lot of stuff where I'm like, 
that's redundant or things like that. Um, but going back to building up to the book launch, so it, it, it took me a while to get to the point where I would consistently write every day. You know, it'd be smaller amounts or that sort of thing. It helps that my phone would pop up and remind me at 10 o'clock every night and say, did you write your 1,000 words today? Yeah. Um, but so what I started doing is once I made enough progress on the book that I knew I would actually finish it because um, that had been an, an issue for me before, yeah. then I put up a landing page that said, here's the name of the book. Um, yeah, I had a little book graphic and an email sign-up form and a few sentences about it and said, uh, if you want to um, hear about the book when it launches, put in your email address. There wasn't any real incentive or offer for a discount or anything like that that I would do now. Um, but that page was there. I probably put that page up um, mid-July 2012 um, and just tweeted about it. Um, at, I think I submitted it to Hacker News and it made the homepage for you know, probably 20 minutes or something like that. Huh. Um, why, why do you think it made the homepage on Hacker News if it's just a landing page? What, what was significant about that that grabbed people? Um, I think it was moderately well designed and people went, oh, you know, a book about designing apps, sure, I want to know when it comes out, you know. Hmm. Um, Hacker News actually seems to be a great audience for that kind of stuff because there's so many really coders who are like, I could do this all if I just knew how to design. So I've seen a few. Yeah. And, you know, with Hacker News, I always try to think, I, I never know what's going to do well necessarily and what, I mean, yeah. there's stuff you can predict, but often the audience will really, it'll really resonate with some people. And, um, you know, I think I got probably 150 people to put in their email address from that, if, from it being posted to Hacker News. And so. Um, Interesting. That was good. But uh, then what I started doing was writing blog posts and putting a form at the bottom of the blog post. So it would be a tutorial on um, something related to app design. And then at the bottom it would say, if you enjoyed this, I've got a book coming out. Put in your email address um, to hear about when it's announced. And I wrote some pretty popular posts. Like one was um, dissecting the new Facebook app update. They came out with a new version. At a glance, it was basically the same design-wise. And I pulled them up side by side, and like, I think I titled the post "User Experience Lessons from from the New Facebook App." And because there were a lot of really interesting details that they changed, and so anyway, that post resonated with a lot of people and um, got a lot of shares on on. Twitter and so I think by the time I launched the book which was September 4th I had almost 800 people that had put in their email address huh. and and none of those were from one huge source it was just a lot of adding a couple a day um, type of thing yeah interesting um, why don't we kind of end off this first part here because um, I, I want to get more into the details on how you actually accomplished all this. But 
why don't we end this first part here just by uh, talking a little bit about what has building your own products meant for you and your family? Because you're, you're a family man now. You're, you're married and you have uh, a kid. So what has all of this meant for you guys just as a, a family? So it's meant a lot of things. It's, it's been a huge uh, lifestyle change. I, I used to be, especially for the last year or so that I held a regular job, I was fairly frustrated and complained about it relatively often. And, you know, I still have things I complain to my wife about, but uh, yeah. my job is not one of them. Yeah. Now and um, you know we travel quite a lot. I just got back from Costa Rica a couple of days ago. Um, going to Miami next week, Hawaii in a few more weeks. Um, so I try to go to a handful of countries a year. This last summer we it took five weeks, and my wife and our one and a half year old son. Um, we took five weeks and traveled through England, Wales, Scotland, Italy, and Switzerland. Um, yeah, it's just, it, there's so much freedom and that you, you can do when you work for yourself, have a decent amount of money saved. And, uh, yeah. And, and now I'm in so much better of a financial position than I was even then. Yeah, and you've posted on your blog that in October 2011 you were making $60,000 a year. Mm-hmm. So it, it sounds like you've significantly improved your your financial situation as well. Yeah, I have. Um, I was very happy when I got that job making $60,000 a year. At 18, I was, I, I was thrilled. Yeah, um, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, but last, you know, I... I Posted on on the blog for my year end numbers, and I did about one hundred and forty five thousand um, for two thousand twelve, and so it's just a huge increase. And actually, I did the majority of that in the last four months, huh. um, and so I expect two thousand thirteen to be far bigger. Um, products are just the way to go. It, <laughs> there's so when- there's so much potential for leverage. Rather yeah. than trading time for money, I can now take marketing knowledge and and leverage a product to uh, huge amounts of money, at least to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of keep building up on your past successes, right? Like now you've kind of got an audience who've, who's previously bought and loved the things you've put out there. So now instead of blogging and hoping that they don't just disappear into the void. You've kind of got people who it's hitting right away that if they liked what you did the first time, there's a good chance that they're going to buy from you again. So, yeah, you're never starting over from scratch again. Yeah, there's something I want to mention while I'm thinking about it. And if you post a that you built a product and you're sharing the numbers, say like that post makes it on Hacker News, there will be a lot of comments of people going, okay, you made X number of dollars, you worked however many hours. Let's try to estimate that, um, and that came out to you know forty dollars an hour. Eh, if you're a decent programmer, as a, you should be able to pull in more than you know whatever that came out to. So it was a poor use of your time, and I see that all the time um, over the web where 
where people will say, your time would have been better spent um, just doing contract design or development work. And there's something that you just brought up, Kyle, and that's that you're, when you sell products, you're able to build on, on what you do. So if I do a great project, a great freelance design project, for a client where I have an NDA in place and I can't talk about it, that does not help me other than a tiny skill increase for my next project. If instead I'm blogging, I'm um, selling products, you know, say I, my first book, I, I sell um, a few hundred copies, then after that I've got, you know, say 300 people that have paid me before who obviously value what I do and that is built up and I can leverage that for future products and so there's this hidden cost to contract work in that mm -hmm. it's in it's hidden away in a closet and nobody knows about it and so I think you, everybody has to factor that in when they're making a trade-off between building products and and doing contract work it's not just about the money there's um, there's right. other elements that you have to think about it's it's kind of like investing in any asset right like upfront you might take a loss, mm -hmm. but over time that asset is going to more than pay for kind of what you lost on it up front. But that's that's the whole point behind assets and investments and products are the same thing pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Thanks to Nathan Berry for being on the show. Nathan will be back next week to talk about specific tactics for creating and launching your own product. Now it's time for a new section. It's called Shoutouts, and this is a chance for you to advertise your bootstrap product, the job opportunity, or your side project to our audience of product people, entrepreneurs, developers, and designers. The cost starts at $39 per episode, and it's a great way to reach thousands of people uh, for not much money. To purchase a shoutout, you can go to productpeople.tv slash shoutout. This week, we'll give you a sample of what a shout-out sounds like by promoting some of our projects here at Product People. First shout-out, the best way for you to help share our show with others is to rate our show in iTunes. If you go into the iTunes store and search Product People, you'll find us. Then it's as simple as clicking five stars. You can also leave a written review. Here are some of the other reviews that people have left. From Canada, we have Timothy Fletcher. He says, add it to your weekly listens. Fascinating interviews with entrepreneurs that have been there and done it. Plenty of useful tips for building your own SaaS apps. Definitely worth a listen. From the USA, and we need more US reviews. We just got a bunch last week from Robert Williams. These guys do an awesome job asking questions. I find myself beginning to wonder about a topic and then bam, someone asks it. They already have a bunch of my favorite people interviewed. I'm looking forward to what comes next. This is my favorite podcast. Thanks, Robert, for that. And from Spain, we have uh, Amea Castro. She says, very insightful interviews. I'm thinking about making my own products and listening to this podcast is really helpful. Thanks for all the insightful interviews. The second shout-out is to ask you guys to follow us on Twitter, at Product People TV. That's at Product People TV. Follow us on Twitter. That's where we post new uh, interviews and questions and things like that. It's also a great way for you to share the show with other people. Um, you can just share our Twitter handle, at Product People TV. 
thanks for listening. We'll see you next week where Nathan returns to give us specific steps for building your own info product.